welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm Yost Vendrana. And we are here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Friday, March 3rd, Xbox Game Pass PC has now expanded into 40-some countries, Sony is looking for a pivot into media, and Hogwarts, did anyone care about the protests? Turns out not. All that and more with your two very busy co-hosts, but first, we've got some catching up to do. Uh, I'm okay. I'm real busy. So first thing I'm going to do is <laughs> take... business. First thing I'm going to do is take a B-reel of us making this podcast. I don't know. Have you experienced B-reel as a... you gotta get you got to get in here. Oh, got to get... Okay. Yeah, so it takes it takes a photo of both what's in front of you and a selfie mm, simultaneously. Smile now. I mean, now. There we go. That's I, go. So, so many of mine have been in front of my computer making a slide deck for class that I was like, oh, I can take a B-reel. While something else is happening, <laughs> I'll look like an interesting person again. Look at you. So, be reeling. You know, it's just you have a little coterie of friends. Be real for me is like a very small social network. There's like nine people I'm friends with on it. Mm. And once a day, we just see where everyone is. Most of them are just in front of a computer. Yes. And, and doing their job. All you know? knowledge workers, just like you. Yeah, and it's it's really not that exciting. But it's, as a micro social media kind of get out of the performance dynamics of Instagram or Twitter. It's it's cute. It's charming. It feels it's very tiny. You, I believe, got a vacation? Are you looking a little a little more tan? I'm looking a little tan. I, I went to an island. You uh, went to an island? The, the older child. Like, like had, Nantucket or no, Martha's Vineyard? What I went we? to the Dominican Republic, which I had never done before. Because, you know, my brother-in-law moved there and he has a bunch of kids there. And so... Also having children, we thought that that would be compatible, and it was. It turns out children are vastly and enormously compatible in the context of beaches and water. Okay. So that's what we did. It was fun. Like they, like the, like the. You don't worry about them running out there and like drowning. You know they're gonna do that one time, <laughs> and so you only was, have to worry about it once. Was this the time? Like. <laughs> I. You know the thing is, is like as a as a person and as a dad, like I'm in the water the whole time myself because I'm a giant child. Like I'm just flip flopping around. So. <laughs> So I'm there, you know, overseeing all the, the little broods trying to learn to swim. It's fun. Yeah, and they wear themselves down this way anyway. So it's, Oh, yeah. It's I bet that's heat. very exhausting for a little person. They, they lose their heat faster than adults. <laughs> so they just, like, conk out. And then they need to take a rest. So it's wonderful. <laughs> so everybody was happy. I learned some new stuff. I felt for the first time in a long time I was really on vacation because I don't speak any Spanish. So... Every- <laughs> Everything you is, didn't have to do any of the work. Is that bad? no, I, no, no? It was it was like I was in a world completely not foreign to me, but like inaccessible to me. Mm. You know, you come to the U.S. Yeah, speak English, that's fine. But like, how do I? Where do I park? Where do I do this? How do I? Get, and it's like I don't even know oh, how to you, ask. You you felt fully unfamiliar with how everything worked. It, yeah. You know, I mean, it has the basics like there's roads and trees and, and stuff like that, but. How do I, like, where's the restroom? I don't know. What is the word for restroom? <laughs> Balos or whatever. So I learned a few words in this week, but it was interesting to feel so removed. And that reflects back on maybe I should be removed more often. There's too much work happening here. That sounds really nice. You know, you should try it sometime to relax. <sighs> How's your relaxing going? How's, well, you seem like you've been under a tremendous amount of work. Yes, yes. How's that going? I think I've mentioned before I'm teaching a 240 240- Person intro to media history course, Good 
And so that is a new lecture twice a week. And that's my life. Like, I'm lucky if I can be a week ahead of my class. And I'm not, and, and that's almost where I am right now. Mm -hmm. I have to finish a lecture on recorded sound mm -hmm. or the history of recorded sound that I'm giving on Monday that's basically about the gramophone and the Walkman. That's where you then, are? Oh, that's pretty, I thought then, you were like stereoscope or something. I mean, that, I, that was two days ago. Like, okay. we're whipping through. <laughs> just blasting <laughs> Blasting through. through time. Thank God there's spring break. I'm just like clawing my way toward not having to teach for a week. Then after that, it's video games. And I'm, I'm like, even if, uh, even having to construct that lecture from scratch, right. I don't have to teach myself that material. It's just the level of familiarity makes everything so much easier. You know, my photography and cinema lectures came together much more quickly because I at least had functional training in those areas as a graduate mm -hmm. student versus like, especially audio technology, teaching myself how radio worked which is what I, I must have lost like a week of my life on YouTube trying to watch like old men explain how a radio wave works. And they're like this, this five minute, you know, educational video. And you're like, none of this makes any sense. Like you started with a mathematical equation. I can't follow this. This is bullshit. What's going on? Just, yeah, right I, I think I've had to spend a lot of time in old man media YouTube Looking at like old men using kinetoscopes, old men using old radios, old men which, showing how printing presses work. Which is a huge favorite. And, and the acoustics people are the worst. They are the hardest to understand. Their videos are the least coherent. They're the most <laughs> poorly made. The radio acoustics space is a complete mess. Nobody gives a crap about no, that. No, there's no, no. There's no good, useful documentary. It's so it's, it's how far deep, how deep do you go with this? Like, so do you... Just say, well, here's radio. This was around the time it happened. Here's how it happened. And TV. Or is it the radio was, became popular and as a result, politically, socially, culturally, all this other stuff followed? Or like, how does that, how far it, down it, the rabbit hole do you go for you? This for the first time, I don't even get to fully ask that question because mm -hmm. I picked readings that I hadn't fully read, <laughs> signed them. And so like, I'm like, oh, what am I lecturing on? What's in this reading this week, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And I know what I want the class to turn into, but I am so preoccupied teaching myself the content and building the initial slide decks mm -hmm. that those kinds of questions of like, where, what are the bigger undercurrents of coherence I want to create the, is, yeah, is, 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 a, is a second order question. Like right now, it's basically every technology you're getting maybe the 30 year history from the, you're getting some prehistory, how it was invented, and then kind of cultural implications for 20 or 30 years after that. And that's it. And then oh, that's, that's it. I can't take us through the whole history of something like the radio or the telegraph. That's fascinating. Because I just don't, it's, it, nobody's an incredible generalist in that way. Or these are the kind of classes that force you to become a good generalist. Well, sure. And then eventually you'll probably come up with an arc or two of your own. Yes. Yeah, I know, I know that a big arc I want to add to the class is around colonial applications of these technologies. So a thing I don't like is that a huge part of this class is like, well, here's another white man who invented a thing. It's from like, you know, just the fucking printing press on up, you know, like the entire, from the telephone to the telegraph, to the radio, to photography, to cinema, right? It's, it's, it's European and American men, turtles all the way down. And mm -hmm. what I really want is for a subcurrent of this class 
truly be like, okay, let's look at how this technology got deployed in somewhere that isn't the West. It's escaping me some right now as the real need I have is to just teach myself when these technologies happen and how they work. So even That's as fascinating a, though. It's like, you're trying to mix up the, the, the context and we get away from that sort of archetype story of like, and then <laughs> some company was built around it and it made lots of money. Yeah. One, one, can I give you one? But suggesting that sure. this is a Genevieve Bell who worked as a cultural anthropologist for Intel. Yes, and I know her. And it's the uh, the insight that stays with me is that this person did a whole study in how people use phones in like Africa, mm-hmm. and because people don't want to pay for actually establishing a line of communication, they just use the number of rings on the phone to communicate with each other over distance. And so like all these telecom companies sitting there going like, we roll this infrastructure out, and nobody's fucking paying us and she kind of saw this like yeah because they don't have to by just using this very simple application and that i thought was very insightful that people apply this very differently where yes yeah perhaps in in another context you would be do we would observe different behavior yeah so i you know this this is the kind of class i'll teach for the next 10 15 20 years so i have a long time to (laughs) figure this out but 20 years yeah i mean i could teach this till you know in my 60s there, there is a there is a yearly demand for this course at this scale of 240 students. They need a professor to teach it, and may, frankly, most people don't want to teach it precisely for these reasons. So and, and the you're fact doing it that the, fact the kindness that of your heart, or? I'm doing it because it counts as two courses. So once I put it into place, mm-hmm. I, as I slowly start to nail down these lectures, mm-hmm. the work shrinks right? Mm-hmm. Most of the work just becomes managing the TAs. And at this point, by the time I teach this class once, I've written every test, I've written every answer key, I've written every study guide. I have a lesson plan for every recitation. Mm-hmm. And so I just roll out the system. Mm-hmm. I get up twice a week, I juggle, I perform, mm-hmm. I do my little lecture, and then I go home. You, you get to work. Yeah. Then I sit and down and then out. I sit down with a scotch at 2 p.m. and I'm like, oh, I'm done with my work day. That's it. I own this. That's not quite how it'll go. But the first time you teach it is the worst. Yes. You know, there's there's some comparisons here. But so, yeah, once you master the material, I think universally as yeah. academics, like it becomes a little bit more standard. You can anticipate questions and yeah. it gives you more f- freedom to kind of deviate. That makes it interesting for you, too. Yeah. my I mean, my video game economies is like this. It's all locked in. Every lecture mm-hmm. is pretty much where I want it or... You know, I'll pick a lecture or two to improve every semester, but I don't try and improve all of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just comfortable knowing that, ah, eh, maybe this, maybe my smartphone lecture isn't as great as it could be, but I'll fix it next semester. Will this class also be touching on the metaverse? No. <laughs> it's history, so thank God I don't have to. Well, basically, the metaverse is already history. Oh! oh. Thank God. <laughs> that's over. But that's not on our docket today, right? Okay, okay, let's move on. Let's move back. It seems like the most important, the thing that's been getting a lot of coverage in the news, and I think particularly because it is tied to this larger regulatory hoopla that Microsoft is wrapped up in, is the expansion of the Game Pass PC version into a whole bunch of new countries that are dominantly, we were just looking at the list, it's Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Latin America, parts of the Middle East, and North Africa. Libya, Qatar. Libya, you know. I think Tunisia, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, 
a number of countries, in, you know, Costa Rica, Uruguay, Paraguay, and then all of the, you know, Liechtenstein is now getting Game Pass Thank PC. Thank God. Right? So All six people. One of the first questions I had for you is, you know, is, is Game Pass PC, is this meaningfully distinct from Game Pass console? Right or is this this is just the PC version of the console experience, right? And is is this happening because these are not console first spaces for gamers? It's the second part, right? So so it's really the PC is much more pervasive and ubiquitous than the console, for the obvious reason that it's been around longer and it has more diversity in hardware, and as long as you can run a minimum amount of you know hardware and graphics processing power you should be able to run all this stuff. And so it's just a much larger addressable market for Microsoft to make sense, especially as an operating software maker, to just go where all the big numbers are. This is why they keep hammering on, like, it's for everyone, and oh my gosh, they're so inclusive. Because they're just targeting the largest possible audience. And that's just PC, vastly larger than, than console. So that's one. You know, the rollout, I imagine, is a little bit limited based on data centers. I've been looking into latency in cloud gaming the last few weeks and one of the observations immediately is, is that you know we can of course on paper say let's bring all this streaming gaming and all these subscription services to everyone but to do that you have to build the pipes right and so yeah. that means data centers and infrastructure and so i think that they were a little slower to roll it out into these markets right historically they're not as profitable or as valuable right so in basic market strategy companies will focus on north america the big fish in like brazil and mexico uh, those are tend to be interesting then in europe it's always the e-figs right like france italy germany you know spain that kind of stuff england and so the e and e-fig <laughs> english no it's eastland no, it ends up, but so they, they, they do these very sort of basic McKinsey calculations where you take a thousand countries and then you just pick the top 12 because that's where all the money is. It's a power curve. So when you roll out to now 86 countries total, you know, you're dealing with latency problems, lack of infrastructure. Is there enough there? They can do it because it's Microsoft. So is there enough there? I, I, I guess one of my questions is like, who is this viable for? Right, what percentage of the population does this even make sense for? I tend to think of a lot of these markets as perhaps more mobile first. I think of PC as a, a more high-end market. What is the actual percentage of gamers in any of these spaces that are even PC first? You know, not, not many. That's the short answer. I mean, there's tons of people. So the problem is always twofold. Right? And this is perhaps for your media history class interesting, but the same issue we had with telecom. Like, to roll out vast, you know, just endless miles and miles of wires to connect households. The same thing with cable, you know, that's a very expensive, costly thing, which is why in densely populated areas in Europe, it's usually publicly owned and yeah. subsidized because it helps the economy. But in a place like the U.S., it's too big, so they privatize it outright, which is why you had Bell Labs and all this stuff. So I imagine that's the same thing that's going on here. Like Africa, on most world maps, is a lot smaller than it really is. And so to reach all those people in those centers that are valuable to them, they just have to invest so much money, right? And whether that's, you know, an NTT Docomo from Japan or whether that's Microsoft Azure building, setting up data centers, you know, it just is a massive upfront investment. So in 2019, they opened their first data centers in Africa, okay. giving them 
And those continent. those appear to be both in South Africa, if I'm reading this map correctly. Yeah, J- Joburg right? and Cape Town. Yeah, is which, a, Those are the big economic centers, I guess. But, you know, if you look up any kind of basic map, you see most of it concentrated in Europe, North America, some around Asia, Korea, some India, and then, of course, the south part, or the, the, yeah, the southern part of, of Africa. It's the, you know, they go where the money is. That's like where you have dense population, where you have some kind of, you know, uh, amount of money that you can actually but is extract. There, is there not something recursive there where where they go, money comes? There is. I mean, this is, of course, a little bit why you have all the lobbying to attract these foreign conglomerates to invest because infrastructure brings businesses, you know. I know from some of my friends in South Africa that they have rolling brownouts. So every day for six hours, no power for you. You know, just keep your freezer closed and hope it doesn't defrost all the, all the same time. So, you know, that's a regular part of life. And having these large companies invest in the infrastructure is very valuable to them, right? They often were able to, of course, negotiate a lot of land ownership or some kind of subsidies from the government, which is, of course, politically always a problem. And speaking to a colonial past, that's, of course, always been the way of doing business. Like, well, I'll build all this and bring all this if you give me this other thing. So there's a there's a bit of a mix there, but it seems in, in, in general terms, bringing the cloud to all these places, you know, Microsoft is willing to spend the money. Is this Microsoft building its own data centers or is it leasing local or, you know, kind of indigenous data centers? That's a good question. So my guess is for these newer territories like Africa, they build it from scratch. In existing places, they tend to rely on auxiliary, like third-party service providers saying, like, look, we can have our own, but then we also rely on these two other ones. So you do have a bunch of these local service providers in the cloud or in infrastructure, generally speaking. For Game Pass, I don't know. Yeah, so one of the things I've been reading about is, like, so there's a, there's a latency is always the problem. Right? Like, how do I make sure that everybody has access to, like, super fast everything? Okay, well, one of the, the, the problems is, of course, kind of in the same way that Netflix does it with downloading and streaming, you don't have to host all of everything in every node. That's totally not feasible because, you know, if you put an entire Steam library on every node in a data network, that's totally unnecessary. It's inefficient. So what you do is you start filtering it in some reasonable way. So you can say, well, the top 10 games, which is kind of what Game Pass is, of course, coming up on, saying like, well, these are the 100 titles that we're going to just be making available everywhere. We make sure that it's everywhere. It only takes up this much space because Mm. we decided that these were going to be the titles. And that makes it much more, it reduces demand uncertainty. So title rotation is actually a byproduct of a latency issue, we could think of it that way, rather than this idea of the ongoing subscription or this, that is never how it is framed when Microsoft talks about it, right? It's always talking about bringing you the new stuff as the old stuff phases out. Mm -hmm. But it's actually just because we don't have the power in our telecom to host everything yes. everywhere it all is, at once. It is it, exactly. It's inefficient for them to have an uncurated catalog of, of content, you know, across all of their data centers. You know, so the so the technology or the the, the lack of infrastructure or the limitations of the infrastructure helps determine the creation. Okay. Okay. It's fascinating. So so I'm curious. Like we'll see. You know, like it, it, they rolled out to like 68 countries now. What's left? You know, everybody should have access to all the things that they want to have access to. But at the same time, you know, is this mission critical? I don't know. 
Well, how is this being perceived within the ongoing regulatory shit show that Microsoft is? <laughs> is that what we're calling it? Uh, I'm going. Well, <laughs> you know, while you, while you were basking in the sun of the Dominican Republic, you the know. president of Microsoft was scooting and finger pointing all over the stage in Brussels, That's trying it. to convince Mr. us. Smith. Yeah. yeah, there was a number of key announcements. One would be partnerships with both Nintendo and Nvidia. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so I have to assume this is about calming anxieties about Microsoft's unwillingness to actually make its catalog open once it would acquire Activision, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Anything else? What else is going on here so, under the hood? So, so, so here's the, take a step back, right? So Brad Smith, he is tip of the legal spear at Microsoft. This is one of the people that's been with them for like decades, that has seen them through that entire rigmarole in the early 2000s when they got sued almost out of existence by the FTC because they were bundling operating and application software and all that. So he's been there, he's seen it all. He also wrote a book last year, came out, Tools and Weapons, which you could read if you want that, but don't really recommend it so much. But his his conclusion was like, yeah, you know, like big tech is very worried about interventionist regulators, so much so that they're forgetting to ask the important questions like what would we want technology to be? So he's sort of inserting a sense of humanity into all this policy and economic interest in the rollout of technology and, and how it shapes up. So he seems like a reasonable person. Then, of course, he's on stage and he walks around, he says, with an envelope with a contract for Sony that if only they could sit down, they would sign it. They would be so happy they would get 10 years just like Nintendo and NVIDIA got. You know, it all feels like what, I don't know if that's an English word. It's, in Dutch, they call it a charm offensive. Oh, yes. How do you say it in Dutch? A, a, a charm offensive. <laughs> You know, we could do this whole podcast in Dutch if, if that if that really goes for you. But it's the but so they're as as you point out, they're trying to placate and seem nice, and it's a it's a press offensive. Like they're trying to just come across as like reasonable people. So this rollout to forty other countries is part of that. Going to Brussels is another one. Saying like, look, and we're doing these deals, and we're being true to our promises. We said this, and now Nintendo has it, and Nvidia. You know, wouldn't you too love it, Sony? Wouldn't like that? It makes Sony to hold that. Like, why are you such a stickler here? And we can talk about Sony in a moment, but it's, you know, I commend them for trying everything that they can. Like, a lot of this is, of course, done behind closed doors with regulators. I was just about to ask, how long do you think it took to get these deals down, to get a deal with Nintendo, right? I mean, this is is very, very high-powered executive movement, right? Corporate jets keep... Yep. flying around like that's how they that's you know this is the behind closed door stuff like who do you even call for this i mean i think you have called the president of nintendo yeah okay what's his number do i do you know like and how is your japanese like you know how do you sway these people so unless they're it's like so that's a big push yeah like, that was a royal hand job is is what just <laughs> what just happened right the visuals <laughs> this week are stunning take it off this b-roll all right anyways the effort that microsoft's putting behind it you know like I said, I commend them. They're, do, they're really doing everything at the same time. You know, it, it also makes them, as I talked about before, it's like sort of tall trees catch a lot of wind. Like, it's easy to criticize it, saying, like, look at these goofy people and, like, descend, like, this heavyweight legal expert to Brussels to do, like, a little show and tell and walk around with an envelope with a contract. It's like, it feels a little hokey to me, but whatever. It's, it's not addressed to me, so who cares what I have to say? It's more, you know, what else can they do? I think... From a press perspective, 
I mean, there's two things. The press perspective, you know, the more time this takes, the harder it is for Microsoft to sell this idea because people are like, well, wh why are they delaying? What's going on? It, it weakens the case. And the other part of it is, of course, that they also announced that the EU is totally happy with behavioral remedies as opposed to structural. Right? I heard, so I saw something that it, it, it seems increasingly likely that the EU is just going to give the thumbs up to this. Which, you know, I told you. I told you this months ago. That's exactly what they're going to do, and they're doing it. So if you were if you, if you were betting on this somewhere with a bookie, <laughs> if you had been listening to this podcast more religiously for financial advice, please don't take this as financial. Advice. <laughs> but yeah, but but I predicted that it's going to happen. Right? EU is much softer and all this stuff. They're happier. They've been running tests. Don't think all the data has been presented, but it will come. And so they're happy with behavioral remedies as opposed to structural, like the FTC and the CMA. So both of those, by the way, let's talk about them for one second. CMA had its chief executive do a speech, like a big talk, in which she directly addressed the question whether or not the CMA had become more and or too much of an interventionist regulator. Basically addressing the questions like post-Brexit, are you trying to just look relevant, yes or no? No, of course not, because the world has changed, blah, blah, blah. But it's interesting that they're breaking this out very directly and, and, and coming up with it, saying like, okay, let's we have to face this head on. The FTC... Meanwhile, opened a new office, the Office of Technology, which it's going to, Ooh. it has some job openings. Is it so, time for me to pivot? I don't know anything about regulatory. They're looking, they're looking for domain experts and they're saying, you know, we're trying to learn and be good, better at this. If you're interested in writing reports for regulators and policymakers, this is your gig. They'll pay up to like 180 grand a year. So that's your salary right that's there. That's better than my salary here. I mean, you know, that's not bad. You'll probably have to live in Washington though. Oh, yeah, that's, so a, that's I, a thumbs down. So I don't know how you feel about pizza, but you know, <laughs> that's a different podcast. So the, but the point of this is that the FTC is basically inadvertently saying, well, whew, that's a lot of stuff to know. We don't really know all of it. And the CMA is trying to cover its, its, its bottom by saying, hey, you know, we're we're not too interventionist. Like we know what you're saying about us, so they're not entirely unscrupulous either, right? They're they're being scrutinized. So so would we say that the statistical probability that a Microsoft deal gonna happen um, just got a whole lot closer to going through? It's for me, it's always been 100. percent But with this, it's pushing close. You heard to it. it here first, everybody. I've never wavered. Several never months ago, probably. Never wavered. So All this, right. then, this is only evidence in the direction of the argument that you've had. Correct. Moving right along, Yoast, you told me when you came in that Sony is becoming a media company. Right. What's that mean? Okay. I mean, I guess I was dumb and already thought it was a media company. Educate me. I'm, I'm not going to take the bait <laughs> on that one. I will educate you, but not on that premise. No, it's so Sony is assigning a new CEO, and that's an indication of a, an additional transition. Sony has been transitioning for a long time, very slowly, as it does. The short version is that after... So they've had a few changes to the guard, but they've always held firm to pursue this sort of unilateral strand of innovation. Basically, how do we develop a new Walkman? Right, That was their big moment back in the day. I mean, it's literally my lecture content for Monday. So you know this better than that, I've right? I've been reading all about it, yeah. But it's it's almost like any creative studio. Like this, You could say the same thing about Rovio with Angry Birds or any, any kind of, you know, artist, in, for that matter. 
you had your big hit, like how do you capture lightning in a bottle twice, right? And so Sony's looking at the same problem. And so it's very expensive to make physical things, consumer electronics. The transition is pushing towards a media company because it's just a better model, right? Apple's been doing the same thing. Apple's been pushing into services. I was going to say, is media here code for services? Is that is that what we mean? That yes. we're going to be a company that sluices content rather than... Sluices? You, you make it sound so seedy. <laughs> Have you played these games? They're amazing. Sony is like a top of the line. They have some of the best musical artists. They make Spider-Man is like this blockbuster franchise, a cultural <laughs> artifact and icon. Sluicing those things would be an honor for most consumers. Now, it's I'm just saying it's a it's a shift from a largely you could say a physical model. Or- yeah, I mean Sony has been the holdout here, right? That they they in terms of the console mm-hmm. industry model, right? They mm-hmm. they have they stand behind that console platform that has tremendous kind of tremendous. What is it that I want to say? Tremendous. Like user identification. Like like the that the 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 PlayStation has been for years considered the benchmark of where the console industry is. Yes. Right. right. And, and it's and, always been top of the line. Yes. And so they have been safe for a long time. Mm-hmm nursing that market, right? They're the company that's always running out of consoles, right? It's not the Xbox. The only the only time that Xbox ever had a leg up on them is because Sony itself priced its consoles too high. Yes. So that was a totally unforced error that they committed themselves. It wasn't because <laughs> Microsoft outmaneuvered them. That was because they screwed up. And so they've been at, you know, this gold standard in console gaming ostensibly for this whole time. I mean, if you really run it down... It's, it's more of a content question than it is a, a hardware question for me. It's like, yeah, it looks great. Blu-ray is great. 4K, beautiful. Yeah, is it distinguishable? You know, I didn't see the, the quality loss when people switched to MP3s because of the iPods and all the stuff. But whatever, I'm just an average guy. So if Sony is the golden standard in console gaming, you know, that, that, that model is probably in its final stages in that yep. manufacturing is expensive. You see a lot of anxiety about supply chains. Certainly, I think Xbox saw that coming Xbox, earlier, well, or acted toward it. Right, right. And th- yeah. That's where Azure is such an asset, right? They, they can just put it on the cloud. Chipsets become very expensive, right? So the question that you see the same problems with Apple, do you start developing, like Apple did it with the M1, M2 chips, do you cut out Intel and start developing your own chipsets, which is super expensive? But long term, now you're vertically integrated and you're not dependent on some other supplier or some design firm for this very sophisticated piece. Sony did the same thing to some degree, you know, but still they rely on other companies for that. You know, that's a tough model. And you see it because gaming grew, so demand outstripped supply. Then the pandemic kind of messed everything up. It was expensive to ship these things. So all of those are physical problems to have. Much better to just pipe it digitally. So the question then is very simply, it's like, okay, so then what? And here's where the difference is. I've always looked at Sony as a consumer electronics company, which effectively is what Apple is too, right? And so yes. they're very easy to compare in that sense. Apple moved into services and so is Sony now. But Apple, unlike Sony, is Apple sucks at content. I mean, they're really just terrible. They make great software to some degree, like, you know, some of their some of their office suite stuff is okay, but their, their TV stuff, it's nobody cares. Yeah, Sony is. Music sorry, is okay. Apple is really about the 
the kind of user experience ecology, right? That yep. you, you take everything out of its little box and it all works together oh my God. very it's, seamlessly. It's, the, it's just a fetish. And you, yeah, you get to imagine that you're living in some computational future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Although the, the the sheen is worn off a little bit for me personally, but it's it's that's that's what they do. They just make better looking devices every time, and so it goes. Right, so I mean it's planned obsolescence in a in a cynical way, but they don't have a catalog of content that is proprietary and just top of the line. And Sony does. Sony has massive amounts of IP in film, music, and games that mm-hmm. is only theirs, and they can exploit it in any which way that they see fit, and it works beautifully. The Last of Us on HBO, that's that's sort of the vignette in this context. Saying like It's not just a great adaptation. It is that transformational moment where we say, hey, we could be doing more with the intellectual property that we own that is content in nature as opposed to technological or some kind of set of patents. The moment you start to look at the numbers, you see that games, music, and film accounts for 48% of their profit margins. Jeez. As opposed to their hardware businesses, their and their financial services, and it has to be easier to expand the profit, the the margins on that than it is on the hardware. It is absolutely right? easier. The hardware is only a diminishing return. Hardware is tough. Well, I mean, yeah, yes, and and the reason is because you have a sunk cost, and it's transactional in nat- nature. Yes. Right? So so every time I sell you a device, great, I get a bit of money, and that's it. But now I got to find more of you to sell more devices, and that makes it much more cyclical, much more, I say at the whims of demand uncertainty, there's macroeconomic changes. If you do services, which is a recurrent revenue model, right? You lock in capital for an extended period of time. I'll give you a discount if you stay a member for a year. Now I can see a full calendar year revenue coming my way as opposed to maybe mm-hmm. selling you a disc. Mm-hmm. So now I have massive risk mitigation and the valuation on Wall Street will be much higher, right? service-based business models and revenue models are much more valuable in a shareholder context than it is a transaction-based business. So for all those reasons, they're moving in that direction. And I think that that's not unlike what the others are trying to do, but you see how they stutter, right? I mean, so Apple is, and we'll stay with that example, but Apple is also perfectly vertically integrated on its retail side. There is no Sony outlet. Sony relies on... The Sony store. There is no Sony store. <laughs> you know, there's one Nintendo store in New York, and I it's mean, cool. I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't quite even imagine the idea of a Sony store. I'm it's, like, it's, would I only buy PlayStations there? What, what else could I get? They, they, they would just have a giant empty shelf. Like, <laughs> like, that's, that's what they would have. I mean, that's what Apple's doing, too. They just tell you to go online. But so, but the Apple perfected that model where they just made it these temples, these like, yes, these places yes, where these, you go. These when, commodity churches in I, the worlds of Walter Benjamin. You commodity know? churches, I love that. Yeah. When I so I used to live around the corner from the Apple Store here in Soho, and I remember when Steve Jobs died, there was like a wake. Oh yeah, I remember. I was like, that. oh, they're selling a new iPhone. Oh no, the guy died. Okay, but, you know, and it's just yeah, like they, they covered they covered the sidewalk in flowers and, and candles. It's just and it's unbelievable, you know. It's People, like guys, you didn't know him. The experience I have that's remotely related is I have a bunch of Dutch family come in and they, they insist on going to the Apple store in New York. You're like, why? You can just order that stuff off the whole goddamn internet. It's the experience. You, you know, but it's going to the place. Yeah, and then, it's, and then it's take to, a picture. To be devotional, right? It's like, you know, you can always spot a tourist because they have a bag from the Lego store. Oh, God. Right. It's terrible. Right. It's a, I used to have an office by Rockefeller Center. So every semester... My third lecture is mm-hmm. called Brick and Mortar Economics. And I've been able to... I like that title. I'm going to steal it. It's basically like, how did games make money, particularly in the console industry, which was 
synonymous, was the center of gravity of the game industry for the majority of its life, for 40 years, right? For the first 40 years of its existence. Arcade didn't have the longevity. PC was very, very niche for a very long time. Oh, he's already pulling up a slide to try and tell me I might be wrong. I'm just pulling but, up some illustrative data. But I've been using the Dimitri Williams structure and competition in the U.S. console industry, right? I love that because idea. that article, even though it's written in 2001, it still explains the same economic conditions we're talking about today, right? With the caveat that it talks about handheld games and those aren't quite a market in the same way that they are now. But it's like, no, the supply chain's the same. The way the economic structure works is exactly the mm -hmm. same. You know, digital distribution changed that, but, but console stayed steady. And I'm just wondering, how much longer do I have until that lecture is a historical lecture? And not something that I can use to help them understand the way the console market works in the present. That's an excellent question. I think... I'm here all night. I think your title of brick and mortar economics is great. My equivalent title for that is the greatly exaggerated death of the console. Hmm. That we go through these cycles of constantly saying, ah, see, there it is, it's done now. Ever since like the 70s, games have always been accused of being a fad, especially console gaming, because it was a toy and just for children or whatever. And every, because of the hardware cycles, every time it starts to die down, you know, you start to see a moment where everybody becomes very pessimistic about the future of console gaming. Like, well, it's, it's done now. It's, I, I, it's not that I think console gaming is done. It's the traditional economic model, which seems to be over. Right. I, I, or is which I, clearly on its last legs. It's... Okay, so we agree on this if we agree on the fact that when you say economic model, I say console. All right, so those are one of the same. <laughs> because it's different. Like, a PC is mostly digital and free-to-play. Right? You don't go to the store to buy well, a CD-ROM for your PC gaming experience. That's no, you not, do not. Although, you know, because the, the backbone of console, right, was this whole complex licensing and manufacturing arrangement, right? That's where yes. console hardware manufacturers mm -hmm. were making their money because every game basically had to pay a licensing fee to be mm -hmm. manufactured. Mm -hmm. And that that was the renewable revenue stream that was right. operating for console manufacturers. It wasn't that, sure, they often sold their own games, but the way they made money was by taking a little bit off the top of everyone who wanted to make something for them. And that there's a version of that still in operation, but it's this it's under this services model now, right? Mm -hmm. And because we've also taken retail retail doesn't really, you know, that's a that's an increasingly narrow part of the supply chain and Yeah. So <clears throat> so Am I making any sense? You're making total sense. So, so there's Two components. One of them is over the last decade, platforms in the games industry have gained huge amounts of market share and power. As a publisher, you used to run the show. Now, if you're EA, you sit on the same yep. side of the table, but you have a lot less to negotiate with. So yep. that's because the, the market is that much bigger. Apple doesn't care about you. The, the center of power has shifted. Entirely. Yeah. So, so that's the one piece. And then, you know, what that really resulted in, in combination with digitalization is that you now, instead of doing these like... 15 or 12% shares for the platform holder to get the sticker on the box, you basically just pay the App Store fee. Yes. Right? Right? Yeah. And, so the and 30 that's 30% now. Right. But so I, <laughs> I, I did a study for some other projects, and it was interesting for me to take a look at it and say, like, okay, well, you know, when I talk to some of these people, it's like, do they care? Right? Do game companies care about this? 
And by game companies, you mean do publishers care? Do publishers care, right? That they are now paying a 30% fee to a platform holder rather than paying the, what, ten, 5 or 10% licensing fee? Right. So here's how that breaks out. So I'll read it. So this is, this is it could be my second book. But I did some of these interviews and... Heard the, it here first. Yeah, right. It's cool. But so it's counterintuitive to learn that, at least initially, publishers welcome the transition to digital and the rate of 30%, because in a conventional physical model, publishers pay an $8 royalty on a $50 game. So this is, of course, a while ago, because they're now 70 bucks. That, however, excludes other costs, including the $12 that goes to the retailer, mm -hmm. distribution fees, like $3 a disc, merchandising, additional fees for preferential in-store placement. Yes. Digital is also offers more transparency across sales channels, which reduces costs. It allows access to a global market and gives mm -hmm. you better efficiencies in terms of like shipments and allocations and logistics. And combined all of that in a conventional model adds up to almost half. And now you're only paying 30%. So in fact, for large publishers at scale, it was cheaper to go digital, even though the rate seems much higher. Interesting. I had long been looking at the mathematics around where the money was going in a, you know, a 60 price point game. And, you know, a quarter of it goes to retail and 10% of it or what? what is it? Yeah, you know, is... I guess 20% of it is going to the royalty and all of that. And so it to me, it always looked like a one-to-one -one trade is that you were just mm -hmm. taking about a third of the cost of the game was now stuff that all that stuff had gotten deleted and was just becoming part of yes. the revenue for the platform holder. But you're saying that actually, if you are talking about a company that is large enough, mm -hmm. what you're actually saving is like 50 or what those costs amount to is can be close to 50% of the retail. Because you game. don't have all those, all those bits and bobs add up too, right? So, I mean, it, the value chain consists of more specialized companies. Like it's literally like logistics. So it's somebody has yeah. to warehouse your 12 million yep. physical copies. Yep. And then ship them, and so those people are union workers. They need to be paid. They run. They need to. The gas prices fluctuate. So all that stuff costs some. And so now you just somebody's got to drive that boat. And you know, which I imagine would be you, since you are a boat driving academic. And it's the. I mean, it's a little moonlighting as a, a shipper. The but so those are variable costs, mm, right? Mm. And they fluctuate over time, and you have to like lock that in. In digital, you have none of that. Yep. Yep. Like, well, so the thirty percent actually is is a, is a is a. That's a. I'm gonna have to rethink my digital distribution lecture now, no. knowing that it's fifty and not. If you didn't know, now you know. Now I know. This is why it's so important for you to publish your work, Yost. You know. And to share it with the public. I appreciate here on this that. Podcast. I appreciate that. I am doing the best I okay, can. Okay, so what is this in practicality? What is Sony doing then? So, so how is it becoming a media company? So, of its available services, it's me. It's it's content library is really the strongest one. So better to just pursue that. They have in the past done that. They had all kinds of services on the PlayStation. They didn't really catch a lot of fire. But you know, you see them do the math on this and say, like, well, we can run a combination of a, f a blockbuster a box office release or a TV show and then have a game accompanying that mm -hmm. release. And so now all of a sudden you're talking Star Wars level you know, this is Disney-level operations. And so they don't really have... They have strong IP, but they don't have characters, right? They don't have a Sonic. They don't have a Super... They don't have a Mario or any of that, right? Which they really should have more of. But what do we, like... Yeah, Spider-Man, ostensibly, but... What is actually happening that tells us that these pivots are underway? What's, so what's the material evidence? It's the, the amount of money that it makes. 
the profit margin is coming up to so the profit margin today I told you is 48% on the on the media part of it and then you have a few forecasting analysts they put that number in 2026 at 60%. Okay. So that that it's going to be more and than so half. So we don't know yet if there's a specific new division that Sony's going to develop oh, or right. if new people are I know you said there's going to be a new president. Yes, so that's part of it, right? So the new figurehead at Sony you know, is basically going to redirect a company in a way that say, okay, we have to stop trying to make a new Walkman and start, you know, yeah. value capturing the bejesus out of our content. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You need to do what the lowering. iPod did, which was it wasn't really about the iPods; it was about iTunes. Right. Guys. <laughs> the indicator for me is very simple, right? So, so we talk about how Microsoft's trying to buy everything, but Sony, over the last couple of years have bought quite a bit. The short list is Insomniac Games in 2019 for $229 million. They invested $400 million in Billy Billy in 2020. Uh-huh. They have a total holding of, they invested $200 million in Epic Games for the fans. They acquired Crunchyroll from AT&T in 2021 for $1.2 billion. They took a minority share in Discord, Scopely and Devolver Digital, all very well known, very well respected yep. company. Yep. They bought out Jade Raymond Within a year of her leaving Stadia to start, oh, is that Haven. where she is? That where she went? That's where she was. She raised a bunch of money to start a studio, bought another company, and then Sony bought them out. Like, uh, what's his name? Jim Ryan. He's like, yeah, this is what Hot I damn. need. So you know, and I'm sure it's all merit based, but that's fast. It's like you know, yeah. If Jade offers you a job, take it, get some shares. And then of course they recently acquired Savage Game Studios to revitalize and st- kickstart their mobile division. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of what the, the thing. That, it's not to remember the details, other than this is very diverse. This is all. This is different platforms, different types of things. And the one that jumps out to me here, particularly this week, is Crunchyroll. Anime, Japanese anime, is a massive market. It has been growing tremendously over, particularly in its export outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. You have different channels: TV, streaming, movie, video. There's a bunch of reports out there. They also do merchandising, live events, all this other stuff. But the sort of conventional channels like TV, streaming, and video adds up to like $3 billion in 2021. Overseas is $10 billion, right? And that's basically up from like $2, $3 billion a couple of years ago. So this is a content category where they own a huge majority and a very popular anime IP, and they're just exporting stuff. So Sony only has to just press the buttons on these things, right? They own Crunchyroll, has 10 million paying subscribers. So you start to see this empire of different media divisions, all with recurrent revenue models with proprietary IP. Why don't you do that instead of trying to figure out a new scanner or some like more pixels in some TV that nobody can see anyways, right? So it just seems... <laughs> yeah, we've hit the singularity for pixel resolution, I feel like, I've, at this point. My eyeballs cannot what see What if it was anymore. 16K pixels, Yost? You know, I'm going to start wearing sunglasses just <laughs> watching TV casually. It's wild. That's all I have to say about Sony. Does that answer it? Incredible. Answers all my questions. Moving on. Moving on. This is more of a follow-up on a rich and thoughtful discussion we had a few weeks ago about the Harry Potter Hogwarts legacy brouhaha. Can I can I string those words together? You can. You certainly. I, you certainly I, can. I just did. Well done. And they sold. Is it twelve million copies? Is twelve that, million copies of sell through. Is that a measure of like over a month since release or two weeks? Two two weeks. Yeah. 
Hot damn. Can you put that into a context for me? What oh. else sells 12 million in the first two weeks? Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Which was, which by the way, Call of Duty's release. This many people like Harry Potter? That's the more shocking thing for me. But okay, go, go on. Well, I'm sorry. No, I will raise you. This many people like Harry Potter. This many people don't care about J.K. Rowling. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> you know, but so the, so the order of magnitude is significant in that when Activision sold as many copies as it did with Call of Duty, 800 million in three days or something in November, December, that was the reason Activision was actually in the black during earnings as yep. opposed to everyone else. And that was 800 million? 800 million. Woo. Auto sold a billion in three days. That's the record and nothing has ever topped that. But this is the same order of magnitude, right? 850 million bucks made in, 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 in 10 or so, 12 days. So you're saying, I just want to get these numbers right because you just said 80 million for Call of Duty and 12... Eight, 800 million. 800 million. That, that's that's 10 times more. No. So there's three numbers. <laughs> Call of Duty. Is oh, is that money? $800 million in sales. Dollars in sales. Grand Theft Auto, $1 billion in sales. It's three days. So the time periods kind of vary, okay. but it's, it's basically so, a few days. So, okay, we're looking at Hogwarts generated $850 million Yes, in global sales. In two weeks. So, okay, so it did in two weeks what Call of Duty did in... A week? The Call of Duty was top-selling opening weekend. Okay. So that's two days. Okay. So look. But still, it, I mean, this, regardless, this is regardless. Call of Duty. Call yeah, of, this, we're, we're not, you know, the, the, the speed metrics here are... Oh, you're only a billionaire? Like, you know, it's like... <laughs> oh, it's a mere 800 million? Yeah. Oh, my God, look at this I mean, almost billionaire. Drop my monocle. Here you go. Okay, we're talking so about this a, shit, is a, big deal. a shit ton of money. Right? And yeah, it's, it's... That's a, a desirable outcome for any game. Yeah, so this is a record-breaking moment for Warner Brothers. In the Oof. franchise history of Harry Potter video games, this is also the top seller. They had, I listed that before. Wow. Yeah, we talked about where it sat. Because I think when it first came out, it was third or fourth, right? We compared to where others were, but now it's... Yes, and it's the... So you have like... Um, the top. Yeah, but is it like Harry Potter, Philosopher's Stone, and there is... You've got the Lego one. The Lego one, and for, I forget them, they all sound... But there's three titles in all the Harry Potter games. Harry that's Potter sold. and the Cauldron of <laughs> Harry Potter and the Impossibility of Tenure. <laughs> Does he become a professor? I don't know. It, yeah. the, the the thing for me is that they had between seven and eleven million at the top selling ranks of the best performing Harry Potter titles in the past. This one just blew right through that record, right? Wow. So that's a significant thing. So you have to then ask the next logical question, which is Weren't we supposed to be upset and and boycott this game? Where do, where do you sit with that? Yeah. First of all, my question number one would be, do we know anything about the demographics or geographic dispersion of that 12 million in sales? No. No. We have no I intel have no, on that. So, it, it's, on, it's on Steam, so it might, just, might be half Russians. Who knows? When I heard this news, I was like, yeah, there's there's a certain quality of... You know, the majority of the world is not on Twitter. I mean, there there were mainstream news articles about the J.K. Rowling stuff. Mm -hmm. I would bring to trying to assess why didn't that news coverage impact sales would be who's actually doing the buying. Is this parents buying for children? In which case, that is just not the news stream that they're focused on. Well, I is mean, it, it, it did. It, it did impact it. I would argue. It totally sold more because of the controversy. I, I, that's an unprovable argument. Yeah, so I, is yours. I, I, 
<laughs> no, I said mine is a question, right? I, but I, I, I actually, I actually think it's quite. Oh, no, I'll phrase mine as a question. I actually think you're going down a perilous road when you want to argue. Oh, we pointed out about why this thing is awful and therefore it sold more because the implication there is we should not be having cultural conversations about why things are problematic, right? I think there's a there's a bad logic in that kind of argument. I don't think it impacted it one way or the other, not meaningfully. I don't think it sold more because of it. I maybe it sold a few th- thousand units less, you yeah, know. It's... But I think a lot of people who weren't going to buy it were never going to buy it to begin with, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you did, know. did you buy it? No. I, and I was never going to buy it to begin with. There you go. I don't care Same. about this franchise. I never cared about it even regardless of J.K. Rowling being a turf. And so now that I know that, I'm just extra special not going to care. But okay. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm like... Uncare harder. That's right. That means I will never watch a Harry Potter film on a plane. Because right. I don't want J.K. Rowling to get a royalty. But this was never going to meaningfully impact my own play behavior. If you knew that J.K. Rowling was a turf, you were already off that boat a long time ago, frankly. This has been common knowledge within the hardcore Harry Potter fandom, or if you know anything about, like, trans and queer pop cultural politics, Mm -hmm. you already knew this information, you know. And I just, I don't know the extent to... I mean, it was appalling that the New York Times wrote, had an op-ed in defense of her. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I, I guess act- measuring the impact of that on the constituency where it's like, who's doing the buying? What's the age range? Mm-hmm. What's the media literacy? Kind of, you know, how much news? Like, I don't know who your average Call of Duty purchaser is, nor do I know who the average type of person is who would buy Hogwarts Legacy. Right? I mean, I guess some of them are my students, but they're not. Ask them. They're not necessarily the prototypical target market. You know, they're not 35-year-old men. Like, no. Ostensibly. Several of my students bought the game. There was a whole sub-conversation about buying it and then making a donation to, like, a trans rights organization. I think that's a kind of bullshit, you know, like, weird performative capitalist. Virtue signaling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I'm with you. I mean, look, you end up in this sort of like, is this is this really activism? Is I, am I really making a difference here with my like whatever? I, I I totally agree with you on that. You know. You know, she's she's a she is a baleful person, and she gets to be squatting on an IP empire, and there's enough people who just love that IP empire that they are willing to make all sorts of personal accommodations. I mean, I would be very interested to know if you interviewed a thousand Harry Potter fans, how many of them are even aware of this drama? Yeah, I don't think that many. I, I, I love what you said at the beginning. I like best. It's like, this is a Twitter only type of conversation. So if you're not on there, like you don't get Or if it. you're not, if you're not following the outlets cover, I mean, it wasn't the New York times. It was in the, you know, the national paper of record, mm, but true enough. I, I imagine if you didn't already know what was going on, you probably glazed right over that headline, right? There was a lot of uproar about it on social media, but I, I have, I, I think one of the things that social media does is make it incredibly hard to understand what our national conversation is. Mm-hmm. I think the success of this game is not about the failure of that information to circulate. It's more about the fact that like audiences have never been weirdly both bigger and more plural than they ever have. Yeah, it's, it's, it, look, I, I agree with you that there's a lot of variables in this sort of Hogwarts equation. The 
thing that I can't see very clearly is that they have thought this through. I, so who's, so they, who's they? Warner Brothers and Avalanche specifically. So before I say the other thing, the first thing I would say is that I, you know, I haven't played it and I really don't really have the time or the intention to, but Avalanche also made Just Cause, which I love. It's a fun franchise. I know some of the people that worked on it, and it's also a single-player open-world game. You just run around and do stuff. It's really cool. My guess is they probably repurposed a lot of that from Avalanche to make this game, and so it should be a really fun game because Just Cause was the same. It was fun, very sort of innovative. So it's a little too bad that, that all that hard work gets snowed under under this nonsense because these people worked not just for this game but for a longer time to, to, to get to that point. So that's mm. a bit of a loss creatively. The other thing is, is like so as far as the, the, the IP holder is concerned, I did the math with a few friends because... Uh, it was so much math you needed, you needed friends. I, I have my math friends. So, so the question was this. So I get a call from Forbes who is, do, they do that uh, richest people in the world list, and they were trying to figure out how rich is J.K. Rowling, Oof. and therefore, how much money did this person make off this game? Oh, and, so they and you, me, you and, and your guy friends just put on your sunglasses and, and cracked some beers and yeah, got out the spreadsheets? We just mansplained it to ourselves. So, but, you know, there's people that are more knowledgeable than I that can... They can't just ask her? <laughs> she does not seem like a this, sociable this, person. That would have been my approach. But. Well, here, here, I mean, the, the disappointing punchline is that she didn't make that much money off this. Like, so, so, sort of universally agreed that the game, the video game license, was wrapped into a broader media license, hmm. which is a derivative of the book. So now you're like two derivatives down the line, okay. and so it's a percentage of a percentage. And so there's no minimum guarantee. There is probably no. There was no executive credit. There, she has a writing credit on, on so the game itself. it's a percentage of her derivative media rights. This is like a smaller yeah, piece yeah, of that, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, an yeah. even smaller piece of that is games. And games, historically, are not negotiated very hard to kind of wrap them in there, yeah, yeah. because no one cares. And so then it makes $850 million and people go, oh, now I care. It's like, yeah, but see, this happened with The Witcher 2, by the way, right? When the original author gave away the rights for the video game, and then all of a sudden, it's The Witcher 3 super blockbuster hit. He goes, what? What? How do you say? I'm sorry, I made a mistake in Polish, but that's like he 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 tried to run it back. So same thing with J.K. Rowling. I think you know from the conversations I learned, she absolutely got less than a percent on any of that. Pro not even like, they said um, a tenth of a percent was sort of the agreed rate. Once you do a tenth of a percent of 850, you know while that is a lot of money for an average mortal, right? We're talking about a million bucks or a couple million bucks. That's great. For J.K. Rowling, that, that, that doesn't show up. That's what she spends on her tax accountant. Right? A so, tenth of a percent. So $850 million. Mm -hmm. Let me put a lot of zeros on this. Yep, one more. Times it point zero zero one. No, that that's 1%. No, no, point, no sorry, point, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so 850 that's, grand. That's not even a million bucks, which, yeah, for Rowling is probably... That's what she uh, spends making sure all the bathrooms in her home are women only. <laughs> You know? Zing! All right. There we go. That's... <laughs> I was not part of this. I'd like the record to show. <laughs> no, I'm totally with you. But so the so that's the end. That's all. That's all the breath I have for this. So I think it's time to pwn it out. We got two weeks of pwns and Okay, so let's do one of each. Each. Give me your pwn. Give me your own. So, the absolute own 
Mm-hmm. It's not games related, but it does feature someone who has come up on this podcast several times before, which is Lena Khan. The FTC, you know, helped play a role in slashing insulin prices, and that's that's Lena Khan's joint. So that's, that's good. Go. That that Woo-hoo. fucking rules. That's a that's a known. Thirty five bucks, right? Yeah, something like that. It's that's down eighty percent. I have I think. lots of friends yeah. that this yeah. problem real overdue. Lena Khan, way to be. Keep it up. Pwn of the past two weeks is definitely the sad news that Toru Okada, who uh, was the who composed the startup sound for the PlayStation One, he passed away recently. Oh, no. Yeah, I think I think you're gonna have to edit in that audio, but it's a it's a very distinctive little trill. Are you gonna play it? Yeah, it's moody, it's ominous, it feels a little space age. It's like it's nice. It's like French keyboard musician <laughs> stuff. I like it. It's that's a different vibe. I don't remember this one at all. I, uh, I didn't have a PlayStation One. I didn't. I didn't have a PlayStation One either. I do know that like the startup sound, ecology is like a big deal. Yes. Like the yeah. Apple One. Apparently, that's on like whole deal. Yeah. There's a documentary on how they arrived at that one. So this is on that same level. <laughs> I find that fascinating. What are your puns and ounce? Uh, my puns and ounce. Let's start with the thing that pissed me off. Is this continued sort of like laying off of games journalists? Right? And there's this one, I mean, what, what, what sort of got my attention this week was an article that asked, like, as the games industry is growing and expanding in all directions, maybe it's not so much the last couple of quarters, but the last decade it's been just going bananas. It's been becoming harder to become a games journalist somehow. Why? What? Why the hell is that? Like, you know, are they also axing literature journalists and I film mean, reviewers? You mean book reviewers? Whatever. Whatever they're called. You and your English language. Make it so hard for the rest of us. Book reviewers, you know, I mean, film critics, like all of them. Like, are they getting equally cut or is it just the games ones? Well, I think that in most of our mainstream outlets, if we talk about the kind of games reporting you get in... The Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, a lot of it was business oriented because Mm. I think traditional print media, uh, even though so much of it is online now, could it was the way that they could make sense of what to emphasize about games that made them seem not immature. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, oh, we'll talk about how important the industry is. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a number of the journalists that, you know, you and I know that's their beat is they do games industry stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so I, I think that I suspect that the the emphasis on game industry is, is in one part trying to make this a version of finance news. And then also just uh, the, the general discomfort, I think, that that traditional media continues to have around making sense of games and the, the fact that you know, who knows how much of an overlap there is between core audiences there, right? People are not going to the New York Times to get video game reviews, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how big the game is. I mean, that would be wild. Could you imagine LA Review of Books reporting on Hogwarts? Stop bringing up that game. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. There goes our algorithm. Okay. My own this week is slightly related to this because 
you know, all of all of what we discussed so far today is has, of course, something to do with platform power. Uh, it's very hard to prove this, the fact that platforms bend their ecosystem towards their interests. A new study came out asking, did Amazon raise the price of toys following the collapse of Toys R Us? Toys R Us, by the way, was like the seventh largest or sixth largest games retailer in the US until it's collapsed. But And the answer is yes. Amazon absolutely raised uh, the prices of toys 5%. The question is, they can't figure out if that was the result of the algorithm doing its thing or if Amazon deliberately updated the algorithm in some way for themselves. And of course, that goes against the mantra of being the most consumer-focused company in the world, blah, blah, blah. And so while it is adjacent to the games industry, I think you know, toys, not too far from us, The you know, I'd love to see more of this. I think it's awesome that they're doing this kind of uh, research, uh, triggered by a lot of the stuff that you mentioned earlier from Lena Khan. Like we're starting to see some data around this now. It's fascinating. And in fact, it's starting to become increasingly evident that these platforms are serving themselves first. Fascinating stuff. More, please. Thank you very much. Another great set of pones and owns for the books. <clears throat> I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but I bet it will come find us. I will be talking about South by Southwest and GTC. Oh, are you, do you want to do a live podcast from the floor of South by Southwest? Oh, we could do that too. That might be fun. <laughs> I'm totally happy to do that. I need to bring a microphone probably. You've been to GTC? Yes. Okay, so we could do a survival guide. Like, okay. Let's do, uh, like, give, give me your best three tips. Okay. For surviving GDC? Like on how to make the most because GDC is expensive as fuck and it's really far for a lot of people. What what to do? So you and I will now commit ourselves to having three GDC pro tips. Okay. Ready to go. All right. Well, you heard it here first, listeners. That's what you can tune in for next week. That and more. I'm sure this news never ends, quite literally. Good night and good game.